Well, I was just uh, saying to Sarah as that song started, that song is the prayer of the preacher. Uh, no less this morning than any other. So if you, like me, and well unto you if you are like me, but if you, like me, have uh, in your news feed things streaming out from Yellowstone National Park, you will see headlines such as this from time to time. Parts of human foot found in Yellowstone Hot Spring. Yep, it's real. Bears are waking up and they're hungry. Yellowstone tourists decide to get up close and personal with bison. Doesn't end well. It's for reasons such as these, warnings all over the park such as these, warnings all over the park such as these that go ignored repeatedly by visitors to the parks, not just in Yellowstone, but most especially it would seem in, in Yellowstone. It's for reasons such as these that uh, the forest rangers have come up with a, a new term. The park rangers have come up with a new term. Touron. It's a combination of the word tourist and moron fused together. Touron. That is to say, those individuals who come into this gorgeous setting and just look at those signs and think to themselves, well, that's for everybody else. That warning, that danger applies to everybody else, but not me. Touron. Now, you seem like a nice bunch, most of you. That was a joke. Um, don't, please don't email me. Are you talking about me? Um, I would beg you, though, to consider this question with me this morning. To what degree are you and I basically in our approach to life as we hear God's warnings and his commands upon our lives? To what degree are we, in fact, Turons? unwilling and unable to hear what he's saying, even when it's strong, even when it's hard, recognizing the source and therein the seriousness and perhaps even the stakes involved, to what degree are we willing or unwilling to just disregard what he has to say, speaking into our lives, especially when it's strong, especially when it's hard, and just playing fast and loose with that and the consequences. To what degree are we, in fact, Turons? And that brings me to our new sermon series. We're going to be moving over the next several months through the book of Judges. So hang on. Uh, Will and I are going to be tag-teaming through that. It's going to be several, not, I'm not even going to say several weeks, it's going to be several months uh, that's going to take us to move through this grand book together. Uh, but we're both looking forward to it, and I trust in time, uh, so, will, so will you. We're going to begin at the beginning, uh, not Genesis, but Judges. Uh, Judges chapter 1, Judges chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 1 and moving down all the way to the beginning of chapter 2, verse 5. So we read a really short psalm, so we're now going to have a really long reading, okay? Um, this is in the Old Testament, if, that's, if you're trying to find it. It's right after the book of Joshua. Uh, and um, before Ruth and, and uh, first and second Samuel and, and such. Um, 
and, and those, those books in the Kings and the Chronicles and, and, and all of that. But uh, in, in, in the midst of all that, sandwiched in the midst of all that, you find this book called Judges. And uh, as we move through this, no doubt you will find out, you will discover with me, that if there was a rating guide uh, on the book of Judges, it would certainly not be G. It would not be PG. I don't even know that it would be PG-13. There'd be sections that would go a little further than that. And we're going to be reading those too. Um, Judges chapter 1, starting in verse 1, reading on through chapter 2, verse 5. Hear now God's word. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up for first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their land, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek, and fought against him, and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and cut, caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Shisha and Hachiman and Talmai. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath-Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksah, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksah, his wife, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey. And Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have set me in the land of the Negeb. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Eshkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the, city, the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city. And we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, 
But they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beit Sha'an and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblium and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahal, so the Canaanites lived among them but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or Akleb or Akzeb or Helba or of Afik or of Rahab. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beit Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beit Anach, so they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beit Shemesh and of Beit Hanach became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Herez, in Ajalon, and in Shalbim, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah, and upward. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bohem, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall become a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Well, can we pray together? Lord, we need you. This hour, we need you. And we can hear it here in this text. Because these are our forebearers. These are our spiritual ancestors. They are us. We are them. So, we need you. We need you to understand that all the more. We need to understand. We need your help to understand that we need your help to see how you are meeting such people as ourselves then and now that you would convict us where we need that that you would comfort us where we need that that you would equip us for service in your kingdom and we pray in your name amen those of you who are not already fans of c.s lewis's the chronicles of narnia uh, let me just whet your appetite for just a little bit of the series, uh, in particular, the very last book. 
which is called the last battle. In the last battle, uh, in that, the flow of that story towards the end, uh, you may recall, those of you who have read the story, that one of the four children, her name is Susan, one of the four children, uh, those four who were called, brought into Narnia to be kings and queens of Narnia, they're in the midst of this plot unfolding, the last battle, and in this scene, which is supposed to be symbolic of heaven itself and the eternal presence of the Lord, the new heavens and the new earth, if you will, there in the midst of all of that, Susan, one of the four Pevensey children, is absent. It is a jarring, glaring omission for the reader. You're not used to this. In every mention up to, if I'm not mistaken, every other mention of the, four, of the Pevensey children, it's always basically as a foursome, well, except for the two in, in Prince Caspian, but that's another story, literally. But when you get to this last story, the last battle, she's not there. And in fact, even in the midst of the flow of the plot, the characters, some of the characters are asking one another, where's Susan? You get an answer. My sister Susan, answered Peter shortly and gravely, is no longer a friend of Narnia. Yes, said Eustace, and whenever you try to get her to come and talk about Narnia or do anything about Narnia, uh, she uh, says, what wonderful memories you have. Fancy you still thinking about all those funny games we used to play when we were children. The scene raises just a, a, a sobering issue. Lewis is describing someone who seemed to be, who seemed to, well, who started off being, who seemed to at least start off being a, a follower, a friend of Aslan, to put it in another camp, another world, to be a Christian, who seems to be a follower of Aslan, who seems to be a follower of Jesus. But she dismisses all of that as just childhood fancy as though it never happened. And in the Christian life, what Lewis is pointing our attention towards is the reality, the warning, the dangers of apostasy. That's when someone seems to be a Christian, seems to have started off well doing, saying all the right things, but at some point rejects Christ, rejects his teaching, turns away from him and his people, and commits what is called, technical term, apostasy. It's a real, sobering, weighty issue, which brings us to the book of Judges. Because in the book of Judges, what we see are the beginnings of apostasy. The beginnings of apostasy. Now, as I said earlier, the book of Judges is something of, it doesn't just come after Joshua in the sense of the order of the canon and in the order of chronology. It's something of a sequel to the book of Joshua, but a dark sequel. So it's, it's not, you know, Joshua, the, the, what you read there, the account, the history of, of the, the Israelites coming out of the wilderness wanderings out of the Exodus, out of Egypt. They come to the you know, 40 years of wandering. They come to the east side of the Jordan. They cross the Jordan. They move into the promised land, the land promised to them by the Lord. And they begin this series of conquests, taking the land that is fact, in fact been given to them. And that's the book of Joshua. And it's on the whole goes fairly well. 
as far as the Israelites are concerned. But then you get to now the book of Judges, and you're expecting, perhaps as the reader, just like, oh, well, that's just going to pick up where they left off, and they're just going to finish the job, and that's not exactly what happens. It's no longer just a story of continual pushing into the territory and taking what the Lord had given to them, but rather it's a story of sin running rampant of sin running, of rebellion against the Lord, the one who has given them this land, who has made this promise and put it there before them, if they will but heed his word. It's the beginnings of apostasy. And what we're seeing in this text is simply this. The Lord is telling us here, then and now, telling us here of the dangers of apostasy and the reality that we still now today need to hear this warning. He's showing us, he's telling us of the dangers of apostasy and the reality that all of us then and now and ever since need to heed this warning. Now, what would it look like to heed this warning? What, the, would, what might that entail? Well, at least partly what it might entail is understanding the beginnings how it starts. And you can see that here in the book of Judges. So that's where we're going over the next few minutes. And you see that if you've got the outline, three component parts. The initial faithfulness, things start off well. The initial faithfulness, that's part one. Part two, progressive compromises that take place as things begin to go sideways. And then finally, an eventual confrontation because the Lord is not just going to pretend this didn't happen. Okay, so you start off with initial faithfulness, then move to progressive compromises, and then an eventual confrontation. So first, initial faithfulness. This is verses 1 through 21. I'm not going to reread all of that. Um, I do want to hit just some highlights. So initial faithfulness. It's a promising start. A promising start. Verse 1, right? Things, it's, it like picks up right where you leave off there in, in the book of, uh, of Joshua. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? That's a great question. That's a good start. That's a really good start. They recognize their need for leading. They recognize their need for a leader. They recognize that, that we can't come to that, the answer to that question by just calling for a referendum. We need to ask the Lord. And they ask the Lord. It's a really good question. Great start. Great start. And with that, they need some early success right on the battlefield. You read this again and again and again of this, you know, moving into this area, moving into this area. And it's really, really good. For, for a time, it seems that, you know, they, they are depending upon the Lord, looking up to the Lord, obeying his commands. And with that, he then gives them the promised rest and victory as they're moving further into making inroads, literally, into the country. However, that promising start also has with it an ominous note. There's, a, there's an off note. Something's off key as you keep reading through this, this chapter, even the beginnings of the chapter. We'll call it this, an alliance reliance. An alliance reliance. It's, it's hinted at in verses 2 and 3. The Lord's in the answer to the questions. Judah shall go up. Behold, I've given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me. And he goes under there, forming an alliance. Now, don't misunderstand. There's no problem with alliances in and of themselves. But it raises a question. The Lord said, I'm going to be with you, Judah. Go. Take the land. Why then does Judah feel the need to get some help? It sounds very practical, right? You know, military conquest for dummies. I'm sure it's like chapter 2. It sounds very practical, very sensible, but 
Why? Why does the tribe of Judah feel the need to bring in some help, to bolster this? And though that may, maybe that doesn't get your attention, but verse 19 surely should. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Now, the chariots of iron, this is new military technology in that time. This is the kind of thing that you want in battles taking place on the plain, big, wide, open spaces. And that's, if you look at an atlas, that's exactly what's being spoken of here. And the Israelites don't have anything like that. They're mostly hill dwellers, and they're coming down into the plains to take those areas. Um, but it's just, they're just chariots. They're just chariots of iron. And it would seem that the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Simeon with them, as they just, oh no, you know, as they see the chariots of iron, the advance stops. The advance stops. They go no further because they see that these inhabitants upon the plain have these chariots of iron. As though now already they've forgotten who it is that's with them. Now already they've forgotten who it is that has sent them. This Initial faithfulness is but a partial faithfulness, and it comes, it's checked by irrational fear. By irrational fear. It reminds me of a news story I saw a while back. Let me just read this to you. Two distressed men called 911 to report an attempted break-in in their home. They told the dispatch that a possible burglar was lurking in a locked bathroom, and they could see shadows under the bathroom door. The dispatcher immediately sent a team of officers to the location. Just seven minutes later, law enforcement surrounds the caller's room, or, or house, rather. They surround the house, so get the scene. All the blue lights and everything, and the officers milling about, and the loudspeakers and, and everything, you know, all of that stuff. They, they, they uh, waited outside the bathroom with a trained canine and heard banging from inside the room. Police told the Washington Post that the suspect might have forced a window open as a last-ditch effort to escape. Well, demanding the intruder open the door wasn't an option anymore. Deputies drew their guns, stormed into the bathroom to find a lost Roomba repeatedly banging into the shower door. Irrational fear? Yeah, maybe. That had to have been a little embarrassing, I'm thinking, not just to the homeowners, but to the deputies as well. I bring this up because really being scared of a Roomba hitting your shower door is no more rational than being scared of inhabitants on the plane with iron chariots if you've got the Lord. The level of irrationality in the fear is the same. It is exactly the same. And time and again, time and again, we see in the book of Judges and elsewhere in the scriptures that at the root, one of the deep roots of apostasy, of abandoning the faith, is in fact fear. If you trace the roots, where did it begin? It began with fear. We're warned, do not fret. Do not be faithless. Do not Seize control of circumstances, events. Don't try and take things into your own hands. Why would you do that? Out of fear. Again and again, we are warned against the dangers of fear, which then, before we move on to the second point, we've got, folks, we've got to stop and ask ourselves this question of what are we afraid? 
of what are you afraid of? What am I afraid of? What are we of a people, a body of believers, afraid? What are you afraid of losing? What keeps you awake at night? Approval? Who's the person that comes to mind? Control? What's the circumstance that comes to mind? Comfort and ease? What is it that's coming to mind? We've got to press into this question, and here's why. Because the answer to that question, what do you most fear, is your point of greatest vulnerability when it comes to apostasy, when it becomes, comes to betraying your God. That which you most fear. That which any of us most fear. The Lord in his love is warning us here of the dangers of apostasy. We need to hear this warning. Well, moving then from initial faithfulness, we find in the second point, progressive compromise. That's picking up from verse 21, verse 22, on to the end of the chapter, verse 22 through verse 36. And what we see here. A progressive, one after another after another, compromises. It's like a spreading contagion, an infection. As you read, looking at the atlas, as things are moving from the south and going into, up into the north. Multiple times we read of multiple failures on behalf of the people. Out of fear and their infaithlessness, we read they did not drive them out. They did not drive them out. It's this sobering, frightening, horrific chorus that you read again and again and again through the second half of the book of Judges. They did not drive them out. And it gets so bad. It gets so bad. You read that, but like it's like on steroids when you get to the very end of chapter 1, verse 34. It's not just they didn't drive them out. It's worse than that. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan. Now, that's one of the tribes of Israel, okay? The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country. So it's not just they stopped, but they reversed. And if you keep reading through the book of Judges, what we actually come to find out is the tribe of Dan, which originally was supposed to be sort of over in the central eastern part, of the promised land ends up moving to the central northern part because of what happens here. They retreat. They pack up and go. Now what's happening here? A spreading contagion rooted in, we'll call it this, a forgotten calling. They forgot who they were. They forgot whose they were and the significance of all of that. They forgot what they were called to be and to do. Stephen was reading earlier from 1 Peter chapter 2. Those words were, these are Old Testament words that the Apostle Peter is grabbing hold of just as applicable in that age as in our age. So this is who and whose we are. Let me read these words again for you. Verses 9 and 10. But you are, so Peter, the Apostle Jesus, is pronouncing this over us right now. You and me. Okay? This is, who, this is what Jesus, the living king, is saying over his people right now. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are to be a living demonstration of the grace of God 
at work in every vestige of our lives. We are to be, in using Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount, salt and light, a city on a hill. And the people here in Judges lost sight of all of that. They lost sight again of who they were, of whose they were, and that leads then, not just this initial faithfulness, because that wasn't enough, at least to this progressive, slowly but surely compromise, such that now it's, it's at best halfway following, halfway discipleship, taking God and his warnings half seriously about the dangers in, of, of, of enslavement to sin and our idols, our false gods that which would take hold of our hearts. So let, let me give you an example of, of paint this picture of the problem of dealing with these, of sin and the reality of our idols in a halfway measure. Here's your scenario. Let's say you go to your doctor and your doctor says, friend, I hate to tell you, but you've got an infection growing inside you and if I don't deal with it, take it out, cut it out, treat it immediately, you're gonna die. What do you got going on this afternoon? So you say, I got, I got nothing going on this afternoon. So you, you go through the procedure. They, the doctor puts you out. You wake up. And your first question to said doctor is, well, did you get it? And the doctor looks at you kind of sheepishly and says, well, you know, March Madness is on. And I'm following this team. And my bracket is like really doing really well. So I think we got it all. I'm not sure. But you'll be okay. Now, what's your question? In between some choice words, think you got it all? What have you just learned of this quack? He or she did not take your condition seriously. And therein, treated it very lightly. What then of us? Do we know the condition? Do we know the, 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 the ensnaring, entrapping, uh, enslaving realities of idolatry, false gods, and their effect upon us? So let me just take a step back, if I may. I'm going to give you a little teaser for something that Will and I, I'm sure, are going to be touching on in the coming weeks. Holy war. That is to say, what you're seeing there going on in Canaan with the Israelites moving in and conquering these people and a lot of blood is being shed, and a lot of people are dying in the process, okay? What is that all about? Well, please understand, it's not just a land, a land grab. It's not just ethnic cleansing. It's, in fact, it's not, I'm not going to say it's not just that, because it's neither one of those at all. It's a whole lot more. Just for time's sake, I'll simply say it's a spiritual cleansing. It was a command of the, of the Lord given to his people to deal with the idols of the land and the false gods and the false worship of that land so that they would have a place of rest and security to live and worship and serve him and therein through that be the nation through whom would come the savior of all nations in time. That was the point. That's what that was about. Now, Israel, at this point, however, has lost sight of the dangers of apostasy, the dangers of idolatry, false worship, false gods, and the enslaving power of sin. Have we? Again, before we go on to the next point, 
we have to ask this question, have we? Have we lost sight of the dangers of the enslaving power of false gods, of idols, of sin in our lives? So here's the, here's the unholy trinity of our day. Power, sex, and money. We are surrounded by the clarion siren calls to bow down and worship those things. There's so many ways we could talk about, you know, how we are bombarded with those signals and those messages. I, we could be here all day, but that wouldn't be terribly encouraging to list that anyway. We're surrounded by that. Do you really think you are unaffected by that? Do you really believe, are, you, are we so deluded, so conceited to think that we this morning are not affected by that? Or, or the mentality, the stance of our age, the stance of, the, of our surrounding, of our neighbors, of our contemporaries. And what is that stance? What's the grid through which we see all of life? Yes, not just they, but we see all of life. It's about self, self-determination, self-dependency, and doggone it, an absolute necessity for my rights over anything else. Applied about every category you can think of. Do we really believe that we are unaffected by that cesspool, by the call, by the temptation towards those gods, towards that false worship? Are we so conceited? Are we so foolish? Friends, we must take a step back here and ask those hard questions and go to the Lord with pleading in prayer regularly, constantly, asking him to help us to see the ways in which we are falling prey to this. Last thing, last thing we need to press into, and that is the eventual confrontation. Uh, how does the Lord see all this? How does his assessment of all of this after the initial faithfulness, after the progressive compromise, the warning continues that we need to heed regarding apostasy, and we see that with this confrontation, verses 1 to 5. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bohem, and he said, I brought you up from, the, from Egypt, brought you into the land that I swore to give you, to give your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. They called the name of that place Bokim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. So a messenger from the Lord comes, the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord comes with this a route where we're actually told specifically what the route is through Gilgal. What in the world is that all about? Well, again, remember how I said earlier that after the, the Israelites' wilderness wanderings, they came up on the east side of the Jordan, crossed the Jordan, and they get to the west side, and at the west side is a place called Gilgal. And at Gilgal, there was a covenant renewal ceremony. Go back to Joshua. You can read about it. There's a covenant renewal ceremony. The angel of the Lord is intentionally, I don't know what this visually would have looked like, I can only, we truly can only imagine that. But the angel of the Lord comes to his people from Gilgal, this place, and intentionally, it would seem, to remind them, 
to, as this ever-present powerful reminder to them of God's covenantal love for his people. About he was the one that had taken the initiative in their lives to, to begin and secure this relationship. He gives them a history lesson. You know, so in, in the, the motion of where he comes from and then the, the history lesson there in the first few verses as quoted there in chapter 2. This bond, this covenantal bond that he had initiated and also the tragedy of their response. The tragedy of their response to him. And so then his response to their response is in essence this. You have given yourself over to your desires and done what you wanted. I now will give you over to what you want. You don't want me? Okay. It's a terrifying, terrifying sentence. Terrifying thing to hear for him to give us over to what we want. The thorns, thorns that were the thorns of your false gods will prove to be more painful than in something embedded, sharp things embedded into your sides. Snares, snares more enslaving anything other than me for whom you were made more enslaving than shackles around your ankles. Thorns, snares. But know this, and it's hinted at here, this is not out of despising. This is not the Lord throwing a hissy fit. This is out of love that he's giving a taste, giving them a taste of what they're really asking for. Giving the, he is, if you will, directing them and going to redirect them through these snares, through these thorns. As painful and as difficult as that will prove to be. Directing and redirecting. Before we wrap this up, let me just put, put it to you this way and help, maybe we can think about it this way as to what would it be like? What was it like for them to experience this? What would it, might it be like for us to experience this directing and redirecting through thorns and snares in our lives? Some of you are going through really hard stuff. There's some suffering in this room. I want to be very careful how I ask this question, but I just want to suggest to you to consider this. To what degree is there a parallel here in your own life in snares and thorns in terms of what you are experiencing? To what degree could this be God's directing and redirecting in your life? Now, I say I want to be very careful, and indeed I do, because we also need to reckon with this, that it is not always because of our doing that the thorns and snares come. Sometimes it's because of others' doings in our lives. Sometimes it's very much because of others' doings in our lives. And sometimes it's through circumstances beyond any human being's control. That's something that feels like thorns and snares in our lives come. But even all of that, he can take and work with in our lives to draw us, to deepen our alliance, 
reliance upon him, even as, even as perhaps in the midst of that, we might want to scream at him, and maybe are, saying, stop! Go away! But friend, he can't. He can't turn away from you. He cannot turn away from his child. And you know what that means? It means we as his children ought never turn from him. Even in the midst of the thorns and the snares, even in the midst of the pain, even in the midst of the suffering, even when we want to turn away, knowing how intense his love is for us, we simply can't, mustn't then turn from him. This is part of what he's telling us about the danger of apostasy. When it feels so painful because of what he's brought into our lives that we wish he would take away or taken from our lives that he wish he would add back. And in the midst of that, the temptation to turn from him and to give up on him. And what we see here again and again in the scriptures is, no, no, that is not the right response, but rather, rather to turn even more so uh, to, to him. You see, what we're learning, we'll be seeing here over the course of this series is he loves us enough to warn us of the consequences of our sin. Now, that, that's, that's big. But that's not where it stops. He loves us enough to bear the consequences of our sin. And we see that in the fact that this whole book and all these judges, these deliverers, are pointing towards and preparing the way for the ultimate judge, the ultimate deliverer, Jesus. The clear, ever-abiding, everlasting proof that his is a love that will not turn and will never go away. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, how sobering already as we've begun this story, uh, the series in these accounts. Uh, and we thank you, though, for the book of Judges. It is arresting. It is sobering indeed. Um, but it's real. We ask you to help us to hear and take to heart and indeed through the course of this series and even this morning to join with the author of Psalm 139 asking that you would search us, that you would search our hearts, that you would be so merciful as to hear our cry, to search us and to know us, to try us, and see if there be any grievous way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. We pray in your name. Amen.